Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. All right, welcome back to the EquipCast, everybody. Today, we're going through the second half of our conversation with Gomer, Michael Gormley. Jody and I had a conversation with him that was so fun and so fruitful. We managed to figure out how to press Michael's buttons and get him to go on multiple tirades. We decided to split the conversation. So conversation two this week, Michael's going to be talking about leading with beauty and evangelizing in our culture. Um, I'm excited for you to hear the second half of our conversation today. Right. So I think of I, we have talked about Bishop Barron and, and you know, it's, it's the transcendentals, truth, beauty and goodness that all can be a way, a path to the gospel for us. Um, but they have to be a path to the gospel for us. It can't be beauty for its own sake, right? There has to be someone who who kind of walks with us and accompanies, accompanies us from saying, hey, do you know what that beauty points to? Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about what that might be, how people accompany, you know, like, hey, here's this beautiful thing. Do you know what that points to? Oh my gosh. The way of beauty is a way of educating desires, right? The, the liturgy is an education of human desiring, not necessarily of their reason. Blaise Pascal, everyone's favorite Jansenist. He said, uh, the heart has reason that reason knows not of, right? The heart has reasons that reason knows not of. This one woman writing a, like an op-ed in the New York Times talked about how she didn't have a great relationship with her mother, but she she loved her mother, sure. But when her mother died and she was at the funeral, she sobbed hysterically. And she said, it's true what Blaise Pascal says. My heart knew the truth of my love for my mother that my brain and memory didn't necessarily hold at the forefront. Now, what mm. does liturgy do? Liturgy celebrated well. Be sticklers. Do what's in red. Say what's in black. That's the end of it, right? Just do that. If you do that, Amen. you will educate your people. But the but but then here's the deal: art and architecture matter because we are incarnational spirits. We are hu human. Uh, human animals are rational animals. We have a body, and the body matters. The orientation of human architecture in the Catholic Church is a proclamation of the gospel, right? The fact that they were cruciform and you are in the cross. Right, the fact that mm -hmm. they have archways over and around the altar area, which like the Arc, the Arc de Triomphe in in France, you have an arch, you walk under it, and that signifies celebrating the victory. The victory is the resurrection. All churches had arches, or many of them did, near the altar. A rear-facing altar, which I I love ad orientum. I'm an ad orientum fiend. I don't go to a church that has ad orientum at all, but I love it. I mean, you're all facing in the same direction, and that direction is the tabernacle and the crucifix. And there's that flow. When you receive Holy Communion, you come to the altar, right? All of these things, the sacred art and architecture communicates truth through the beauty. The, the beauty of artwork, the beauty of song, the beauty of these things. It's not just these things done well, but the things that we choose themselves. The church has a tradition of sacred music that is music that is created by and for the liturgy. That's different than just songs that can be used with religious theme. Sacred music is a different category. Now, with that being said, how do you lead people from the place of beauty, right? Beauty advances arguments to people's hearts, not necessarily their minds. And if we are rational animals, right, we have to appeal to both. 
the yeah. goodness, the beauty of Mother Teresa is the goodness of her life. And when you can get rid of the propaganda of Christopher Hitchens and the Mother Teresa haters, you yep. can actually get them to see that her life is so, like, she literally said it's the title of one of her books, right? Something beautiful for God. The beauty leads us into remarkable levels of truth. It also prepares the heart. Beautiful things mean I'm sick and tired of feasting on the ugly. What does that look like in your moral life? I remember this one guy who was, uh, he left his porn addiction, didn't know where to go, came to the church. He left his porn addiction because he said, it got so dark and ugly. This guy had zero religious mm. faith. This guy had zero moral qualms with it, but he said, it got so dark and ugly. And the things that, you know, the things that I had to go to, it was ugly. It was ugly. It was no, like you were dehuman people. And I realized at yeah. that point, I was lost. And now I needed to be found. That's awesome. And it's like, it's almost like we're, we're full circle again. Yeah. An articulation of the darkness, the, the pain, uh, loneliness of sin. You know, like, that guy's like, yeah, I, I know that's true. I'm living that yeah. sad truth. Um, yeah. Tell me about the anecdote. Um, Michael, I want to just, I want to switch gears a little bit. We started where we talked you know, we talked a little bit about RCIA as a, as a process and that the priority of evangelizing and catechizing adults, but you have leaned into, in your ministry, pretty heavily into, you know, what Pope Francis calls accompaniment, you know, to uh, what some people tend to call mentoring, just like this, a real personal walking with people through their faith journey. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and just how, how do people get started there? Yeah, um, you get started by asking your plumber how he became a plumber. And half the time is they started at a school and they ended on a, a team where they were the most unskilled person on the team, and they learned by being on that team. It's what mm -hmm. we call in the secular world an apprenticeship, mm -hmm. right? That's what discipleship is. It's an apprenticeship in a school and in a way. Right, The early Christians were called followers of the way of the Lord Jesus, and they understood themselves as physical as well as spiritual followers. They got mm -hmm. up and left. They moved. Right Now, not all Jesus' discipleship was so radical. He was the first rabbi in Jewish history to have female as well as male disciples. He only had male apostles, but he had female disciples, Mary and Martha of Bethany. Um, he had followers that journeyed with him, and he had followers that held down the fort for him like Mary and Lazarus in Bethany, right? He would go and visit places where he had outposts of disciples. And we don't really see this. We even acknowledge, I think a lot of people don't even realize that Jesus set up shop, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he set up shop at a house in Capernaum, right? Right next to the Sea of Galilee. Like he was there from which he did most of his ministry. When they lower down the uh, paralytic through the roof, that was Jesus's house, right? So in this thing, right, we have to understand that there are different modes of discipleship, but discipleship is primarily a kinetic thing, right? It is primarily about movement from mm. one state to another state. It is a journey. Now imagine if it was just reduced to a class, right? If I take away the apprenticeship model and I just yeah. leave it to a class, right? Like you can go and become a plumber. Out of like a Votech school is different than a college because a college they expect you. I mean, part of the apprenticeship at a university is the debate, the argument that you make in both papers and verbally and all that stuff. 
but a lot of it is book. It's just reduced to book learning and lectures. A votech is here's the theory, here's the principles. Now let's practice. Yeah. So your plumber, your electrician, your cabinet maker, they know more in, intuitively about the Christian life than uh, the academic, right? Which is the problem with seminaries. The seminary system, largely an academic institution, that thank God we're doing more human formation. And thank God they all have spiritual directors and human formators and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's school, school, and more school. And so yeah. it needs to be a a like a rabbinical school, a school of discipleship, where that the way of being a, is understood as an apprenticeship. It should be more like Votex and less like the the college, right? That's what it should be in its final expression. Pre-seminary, right? You had cathedral schools, but most men became priests by being directly taught by the bishop and the bishop's men, which from which grew the cathedral schools and from that grew the modern university. So if you think about it, like religious orders, postulancy, novitiate, yeah. that is a that is a training in righteousness through apprenticeship, right? That's the apprenticeship model. So you take that and you pivot that to the parish. Um, what I try to do in my events is I try to split things down so I can get the groups as small as possible. So I do adult confirmation. Sometimes I'll do it twice a year just because I want classes to be smaller. Um, let me give you a, for instance, I have this couple, hey, when we moved into the area, we just engaged. So already I know they're cohabitating. They're engaged. They're not currently practicing their faith, but they feel stirrings in their heart to come to mass. And the girl's mom, though she never had a daughter baptized, the girl's mom it had a return to her Catholic faith and she comes every day now at, at our parish. So they sit down. She's cool. covered in tattoos, right? Like, I'm, so I'm, I'm being observant. I'm like, all right, they're, they both are physically fit and they are, they are a very gorgeous couple. They're very handsome. Uh, whenever I get meet with couples like that, I always feel like an oaf. I'm like, hey, thank you for letting me participate in your planet. Uh, it's, nice here. Uh, it's clearly your world. I just live in it. Um, but they, so we start talking and here's when, when you do this, when you're accompanying someone, you realize, okay, they've been away from the church. They're nominally Christian backgrounds. They're both baptized. He was sacramentalized and not really evangelized, but there is something stirring in their heart. So they're seeking. You start to think of this stuff strategically and you say, Okay, so they probably are very worldly people that know that the world is not enough. So mm -hmm. I already have some. So I'm going to tell them about the God who came from heaven to earth in order to rescue us and bring our hearts out of settling for just the things of this world. So immediately I go charismatic and talk about the love and knowledge of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ for them as individuals. Then I talk about their sin and how Jesus Christ can absorb even the, and I always use that line from St. Paul, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I said, I don't think of the extreme language. He became sin. I don't even know what that means, but that is so radically it's powerful intense. that in man's greatest no to God, God still says yes to man. And, you know, when you start saying things, you're like, oh, it's not just a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts and some prayers I say. This is something much, much deeper. And then with that, that notion of accompaniment and apprenticeship, when you begin to see how they respond, that's where you go first to a company. So for yeah. instance, they said, you know, really love what you just said, but I'm scared of like, like, well, let me put it this way. Do I have to believe everything the church teaches? When people say that, I know exactly what they mean. We're talking <laughs> contraception, cohabitation. We're talking the sexual stuff, 
right? For the most part, we're talking probably also marriage, you know, transgender issues, you know, whatever it might be that is on their mind or the burdens that they brought into the door that they're not ready to share with some incredibly handsome, but very, uh, very big stranger. They don't know me. They think I might be judging them. So now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, yeah, you know, like for instance, and what I always do is I always lead with the biggest, right? Like gay marriage or contraception. A lot of people know what the church teaches, but they don't know why. And it mm -hmm. all goes back to the same cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I said, and I would love, I said, I can talk, I can answer some questions about that now, but if you want, I would love to schedule a meeting. We just pick one topic and me and you can go back and forth and you can say anything you want about it. Like you can be like, the church is stupid. It's a bunch of old white, white men trying to tell me what I can do with my body. I said, I've heard it all. I'm totally fine with you saying whatever you need to say. I said, but I believe that, that this is ultimately the best for us. Listen, for instance, just think about women's health care today. Now this, this was a totally God anointed Holy spirit movement. I said, think about the care of women's fertility issues. I said, think about how awful it is that for almost every single problem with women's health, the answer is the same since 1960, put them on the pill. And I said, and the pill doesn't solve the pill covers the problems that women are struggling with. So all of a sudden I can keep you regular and I can get rid of some of these issues, including acne or whatever is the other side effects. I get rid of this stuff. If I put you on this pill and you go and you contracept, I said, but it does nothing to actually investigate the underlying problems. Like, so the one was like, no one seems to care about what's happening inside my body. Right. And so I just said, I was like, listen, in my own family, we've had to deal with PCOS with me and my wife and it's heartbreaking and it's painful and it's all. So then I share my personal story. And I say, listen, I know the church is teaching on uh, condemning without qualification contraception, right? So there's the apostolic teaching, right? I said, I know it sounds bizarre because our culture has educated us morally about sexuality. And we've never asked the church to educate us morally. I said, but think about this. When you use something like natural family planning, you're paying attention to the signs of a woman's body, what it's saying, the pain she's going through, all of this stuff, like the scheduling, all of this, or a few days here, beyond 30 days there, whatever it is, I said, you're responding to the signals of a woman's body so you can treat the real problem. And now she's gone beyond sobbing. She's thanking me and asking me, where can she find out more about NFP? And I will say, how many That's priests awesome. are going to spend an eternity in hell because they were cowards and they never brought up this stuff. And there are women in the pews who are suffering tremendously from a medical issue. One out of four women in America have PCOS suffering tremendously. And they're on contraception because they think, this is the only thing that helps. And they have no idea. The church of all places has some answers yeah. for these things. And so I say that pretty boldly, but that's the thing is, this is what repentance and charisma and all this stuff does. Yeah. Well, it lets us accompany. Oh, I love it. Well, and and I, I mean, we just got to highlight the pastoral method there because you're like, Okay, all of the yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave space for honest conversation, and I am going to imitate Christ, and I will joyfully absorb any insults or confusion or frustration expressed. But you're listening for the pain, you're listening for right the, the need, and then courageously going right there with with the truth. And I mean that's like that's what the I mean, that's what the spirit does. He guides our conversations so that he, yeah. I mean, that's like a one in a million shot. I mean, it's not totally crazy to, you know, to, to go after contraception, but that's like, that's pretty crazy. But I, I mean, tell me if I'm, if I'm right on this, but you knew because you were listening with ears, you were listening with the spirit 
who brought that, just like appetized that conversation. And so then you just took a step into it courageously because that's a scary thing to talk about with someone that you don't, you know, like, I, you don't know me, I don't know you, but you went there and that's where the grace was. That's where the power for conversion was. Yeah, you don't know me, I don't know you, but let's talk about your cervix and your uterus. <laughs> like these are intensely personal stuff. They're intensely personal stuff. But when you see people with that flicker of light respond to the gospel, like what did Jesus yeah. Christ say to that to the to the woman John chapter 8 who was caught in adultery? He gave her mercy, but that mercy was made in her now ability to walk away from sin. Right. When Jesus says, uh, when the young man, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, he's rich, he's young, and he's ruler. Those are the recipes that every parent wants their daughter to marry. Here's the perfect <laughs> man. He's young and he's a ruler. He's authority. This guy's obviously organized. He comes to Jesus to be saved. He's asking the right things. He's, he's a nice right guy. Things, right? He's done. Yeah, like, he's like, I've done, I've done all the, yeah. All you have. And the man abandons all of those things. He abandons Jesus. And then the next, and then what does Jesus say in response? He says, it is more difficult for a, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Then a chapter or so later, you meet a rich man who enters the kingdom of heaven, and his name is Zacchaeus. And Jesus walks into the town. The whole town is there. They won't make room for the short little Zacchaeus because he's a chief tax collector. So he shimmies up a sycamore tree. What does Jesus do? He doesn't talk to the righteous people. He doesn't talk to the local guy running the synagogue. He goes right up to the most notorious traitor he was collaborating with the Roman oppressors, and he says, come down from that tree and make haste, for tonight I must eat at your house. He goes to Zacchaeus. This is what people miss when we talk about these difficult issues. Jesus is already ministering to them, mm -hmm. right? Jesus is one who goes forth. We just respond to what Jesus is doing. And here's the beautiful thing. Most of the church, because they think there are a bunch of people with their lives together, and I'm not, and they're going to judge me. This is what Jesus says. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the world. You got to be good enough, holy enough, and moral and can enter into the kingdom of God or the presence of the deity or what or the temple or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Jesus says the opposite. Jody, you will never be good enough. You will never be holy enough. You will never be for enough, uh, pure enough until you first come into my presence. Jesus is the one that makes her, that makes good, that makes more. So the thing is, us hiding the gospel from people, especially its demands, like yeah, it's true. Like when people talk about being winsome in our evangelization, what they mean is like, don't lead with morality and just shame people for not being moral. That's a hundred percent true. You want to chase people away, tell them how they're a bunch of contracepting whores and you know, all that stuff. You will chase people away and you will, you, you know, they will not be rejecting Jesus because of you. They'll just be rejecting you. Um, the idea at its core is these are touch points, pain points. Like you said, these are the things that people are doing that is undoing them. If the gospel is true, then contraception mm -hmm. really does really hurt married couples. Then I need to be able to speak that truth in their life so that they can have healing, right? Yes. But if I project, I'm judging you, you got to be a, at a better place. Come on, you're better than this. No, they're not better than this. And neither am I. We're not for the grace of Christ, right? And so this is the opportunity. I constantly see priests and deacons. I was at this deacon. This deacon invited me in his meeting. A woman wanted to get IVF. She can't have kids, whatever it is. The husband said, I will never raise a kid that's not mine. So adoption was out. Her heart's broken. She'd adopt tomorrow. So they're looking into IVF. She said, I read what the church teaches. I need you. I'm, I don't care. I want to get IVF. I want you to tell me why I shouldn't. And the deacon basically said, well, if you're praying and you still have a good relationship with God, you'll be fine. Yeah. And he goes, I don't know if Mike would agree with me. And I'm about to choke the life out of him. 
that he would say that as a, his role as a deacon. So then it comes to me and I say, listen, I can't understand your pain. You know, a woman who, who's, who feels like, and this is kind of her language, my body is failing me and all this stuff. I desperately want to be a mother. I said, I understand that impulse to carry life within you, but only remotely. Like I can't be there, but I know what my wife said and how much it hurt her when we were told we would never be able to have kids. I can get that to a point. I said, but every single time you're hanging on the cross, I was like, maybe a solution will come. Maybe you'll get miraculously pregnant. Maybe, you know, you change your diet and some things work out and whatever, X, Y, Z. Maybe you go to Dr. Hilger's at the uh, Paul VI Center and they do the surgery that I've had four friends now that have had endometriosis surgery and he can carve up a, a fallopian tube to make it fruitful yet again and they get pregnant, like it's amazing. I said, I don't know what's in your cards. Maybe you don't have kids and your maternity becomes expressed in a spiritual way and not necessarily in a physical way. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know all things, but I do know when you're on the cross, every temptation to come of it, come down from it sounds like the voice of God because that's what you want it to be. And it's not. The church will never condemn something that God will tell you to do. And the church will never tell you to do something that God has condemned. So just walk in the freedom of knowing you're in the center of God's will, even though it's hard. Because we're afraid of losing people out of the church. That's the danger. That's when we actually cheapen what it means to be faithful. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's that self-referentialism where we're, we're, we're more interested in keeping people's butts in pews than getting their hearts into communion with God. Yeah. 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 So, hi, Michael. I, um, I think a lot of what you're saying is just really going to resonate with a lot of people who are listening right now. Um who, yeah, just a lot of people I've, I've talked to who are desiring to really encounter people. Um, but I think part of what uh, we sometimes struggle with is our own human capacity, right? Like I can only encounter so many people in a day um, and I'm only equipped to encounter so many people in a day. Um, and particularly our parishes aren't super well structured <laughs> to help us do this kind of accompaniment. Can you talk a little bit about what it looks like for you to bring other leaders alongside you so that they're also doing this work of accompaniment? Because um, I think it's really difficult. Yeah, let me, let me speak to your parishes right now. And the best thing that I can tell you one day we were doing a capital campaign, right? I'm sure every pastor loves doing that, right? I'm doing a capital campaign. And this guy said, we have all the space we need. It's in your living room. Like the living rooms of the lay faithful can host all of the events and all the small groups and all the classes and all. And I re that really internalized for me. That's awesome. And this is before COVID yeah. when he said that, right? Yeah. 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 Woo, yeah. Profit. Now, now think, think about this. Think about what you said. Jody, in kind of setting this up, what do parishes need, right? Number one, they already have what they need in the parishioners. They're already there. The gifts, talents, the money, the, the time and effort, they're already there. It's just people aren't responding. And one of my favorite stories is when you set up like a small group model of the church, one of the things that the Rick Warren, famous guy, Protestant pastor out Saddleback, California, he's like, we're going to have small group leaders. And they have 300 small group leaders after 10 years praying and felt like God was saying, I want exponential growth. I want you to have 3,000 small groups. So he said, okay, well, we have to obliterate the model of leader. And then uh, I said, okay, or uh, Rick Warren said, okay, well, they don't want to be leaders. They don't want to be shepherds. What are we asking them really to do? To open their home, serve them a drink, turn on the talk, and um, 
and and just have this honest like kind of conversation. So what ended up happening was uh, he realized that people have the charism of hospitality. People can open their homes and serve people a drink, push play on a talk. Yeah, you got it. You can do it. You can be a host. It's his acronym that he has. What is it? Uh, open your uh, have a heart for others. Open your home, serve them a drink, and uh, turn on the talk. Right, like these four things, and you realize like. All these other charisms out there, people are scared of leadership. They're scared of teaching. I don't know enough, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is at the church, the first part of leadership training is, guess what? We already have all the resources in our local parish. All of the people, if they just stepped up and said, I will serve, that's all you need to do. And you can start having things in homes. The, the most important thing you can do if you want to build a community of disciples who are making disciples is you have to do meals and masses together. Meals in people's homes, masses uh, to supply everything that's flowing from and to the liturgy, right? You have to put the Eucharist at the center, breaking the bread of communion and breaking the bread of family meals. They're called companions, those who break bread together. Early church surrounded the mass with the agape meal where the people would bring enough food, not just for the Eucharistic sacrifice, but they would immediately after mass, which was held at like 5 a.m. on Sunday mornings, they would immediately have a meal in some rich person's house. So a slave is sitting next to a patrician, right? And they're breaking bread together. That's why Rome murdered Christians. Not because we believed in a trinity, not because we believe the Son of God was incarnate, because here the aristocratic women are having breakfast with slaves. You're ruining our society. You can't do that. That's why St. Paul sent a runaway slave back to its master and said, you are to receive him as a brother in Christ. Right? That's powerful stuff. And so when we start, okay, so let's get a little bit more now tactical. You need to, so the strategic stuff is the people in the pews already have the gifts. Um, you need to start forming communities around meals and masses. And then the next step, when you are talking about leadership, right, uh, specifically about training things, you need to tell them how to preach the gospel. You need to tell them how to put others first. You need to give them the practicals, yes. of, right? What does it mean to be dedicated to this ministry for a specific time? It doesn't mean you call in sick because you don't want to run this meeting. It means that the meetings are fruitful and productive because they're ordered to a very clear mission. If you have a mission, it gives you permission to say no to things. As a pastor, pastors have to say no if it's not on mission. Right. If having yet another group on campus that does yet another social function that's not building up your church, you have to say no. You have to say no. Tim Cook, famously at Apple, said we are at one point Apple made more money than ExxonMobil. And they said, isn't it fascinating? The vast majority of our products could fit on a kitchen table. And they said, how did you get this? He said, I'm more proud of the things we said no to than the things we said yes to. Right. And we yeah. don't have that ethos. We think, yes, yes, you run it. You, that's a great idea for a Bible study. You run it. You run it. Right. But does it serve the needs of the church where in your local community that it needs to be? So leaders have to be servants who are looking for where the gospel needs to be preached the most. So um, and, and Jesus is very clear, right? You can't call yourself a disciple of mine without the corporal works of mercy. So how are we in our faith formation also prioritizing service? Right. We have a food pantry. Our neighbors hated us for building it because, mm. one, it's, it's, it's a simple building, but two, it's going to bring those people. And we're like, yeah, our posh suburb could use a lot more of those people. But you know what happened that was hilarious? About three weeks after it was built, 
Hurricane Harvey parked at 9 trillion gallons of water over the woodlands as well as Houston. Then the Lake Conroe Dam, which is just north of the woodlands, was at 120% capacity for the first time in its 70 years of operating as a dam had to open its doors, thus flooding all of us in the north a second time after Harvey left. So who was bringing and water and cleaning supplies and uh you know drywall repair tools and all this stuff to those rich people all around us it was us in our food pantries our gymnasium became a staging ground but like we were serving our next door neighbors and they were like yeah i was protesting and i wrote letters against this and now i'm so happy you have this here so the the part of the leadership is we need to foster the full gamut in the hearts of a disciple they need to have a heart for the poor don't they right they need to have a heart for the poor yeah. I mean, uh, all of it. It's so funny. It's like the Lord uses your conviction to serve the poor. And, oh, turns out it's it's our neighbors. Ah, yeah, that's a, that's awesome. Turns I mean, just, out. Just, <laughs> turns, turns out, out. <laughs> it was us. <laughs> what do you say to those who are are struggling to make that that personal accompaniment um, uh, a priority? You know, when there's so many things that are that are demanding their time, um, yeah. And I'm, then I'm going to ask you uh, yeah. a follow up question about about COVID. But yeah, you have to stop hiding behind your desks. Desks are so safe. Desks are so safe. Uh, I had an archdiocese offer me a job, and it was for a lot of money. And two things made me turn it down, which was uh, we have a woman who comes over. Sometimes she brings coffee, but she just walks in with her kids and sits down with my wife without knocking. And they have coffee for 45 minutes, and then she takes kids and leaves. Like, can I have that kind of community where someone trusts my wife and my wife trusts someone to just do that? You can't pay me for this woman. And then the other thing that I said was um, I can't do ministry from behind a desk. And my only experience – now, I have since been proven wrong in multiple dioceses, but I was kind of a jerk to these people, I said. And is <laughs> what is diocesan ministry but desk-writing ministry? That's kind of like the archetype model. I spend – four days out of five on the road. So there are different ways of doing ministry. And so I'm not judging or critiquing y'all, but that's what my heart was. So there is so much safety and control behind a desk, but you're not with people. So I would say in a given 40 hour work week, about 30 hours of my week is given over to meetings with people. Yeah. Um, And that's really hard for me because I don't know how to answer all my emails and return all my phone calls in 10 hours a week worth of work. Mm -hmm. I try my best. I do time block planning. I got, you know, I use my calendar like a boss. I listen to Cal Newport and all this stuff. And I'm like, Mr. Productivity. I try to be, but I prioritize people. I prioritize people because uh, an email, an an email might be tied to a person, but emails don't go to heaven. So um, there's an element of people who, who are tired. There's a lot of burnout in ministry. Yeah. And so they retreat behind a desk and maybe they need it for a while. Like a police officer who discharged a weapon. Maybe you need just to ride a desk for a couple months, <laughs> get your head on straight, process what you're going through. You know, I, I've been put through the ringer because of COVID. I have been maligned and torn apart as a lay professional working for the church by the people who were my best friends almost, right? Oh, you're trying to control us, you freaking liberals. And I all this stuff, and I'm like, I just ask that you wear a mask when you come to communion, right? Like I can't, it's not even my decision, right? Like, but I, I mean, the, the, the level of vitriol that has occurred made me want to hide behind my desk. I can write papers and I can publish mm-hmm. audio podcasts to my heart's content behind a desk. But the problem is 
I can't save souls that way. I need, there comes a point where I have to not just be a catalyst, right? That's what I say. Catholic speakers are catalysts. We come into a thing, we hope for the lightest spark, and then we leave. But it's the people left behind that kindle the flame, that mm -hmm. keep it going, that raise it to a roaring bonfire or whatever, whatever fun analogy you want to use with flames. Uh, but for me, I'm the bonfire maker in my parish. Hiding behind a desk, I might be able to be a catalyst with a, like a cigarette lighter kind of thing, but I want to make bonfires in individual souls. So, Michael, let me let me ask. This is, this is great. I love I love this. And we 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 had down was like we wanted to. We added this question. We thought of it later. So, uh, Jody and I work. We're actually recording here. We work for the Chancery. We're recording in the Chancery building right behind now. our desks. <laughs> behind our desks, uh, and. You know, again, you're in another diocese, but you work in a yeah. parish. Um, yeah. Could you like, could you just speak, educate a little bit to like, what do you, what do you want from the diocese? What, what, what do those who, who work at chantries, what, what do we need to know to, to come alongside, uh, to actually be of service uh, to, to those in, in parishes, folks like you that are, that are really trying to, you know, well, you're, I mean, you're in the trenches, you're in people's lives. Yeah. I think the main thing is the sense of you being for us and not us existing for the sake of propping up your career. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I mean, like that's like my most blunt way of saying, and I don't know anything about how you guys run your diocese. I'm sure you're fine. It's the people next door that are trash, but the idea, and it's just kidding, yeah. just kidding. but the idea at its core is so many parish uh, lay workers, priests, even, you know, they, they tell me all the time, I feel like oh, the archdiocese just passed a new policy time for more make work uh, efforts for the lawyers. And, you know, it's like, there's mm -hmm. certain, there, there, there can tend to be this element where guideline upon policy, upon rule stacks up so much that we're not trying to do good ministry. We're just kind of trying to cover the butts of the, of the chancery. Right. And there becomes this point where it's, it becomes exhausting and defeating that the, the chancery becomes a giant fire extinguisher for what we're trying to do. Now, there are reasons why policies, procedures, guidelines, and rules come into play, because some idiot at a local parish decided it would be a good idea to use the <laughs> parish credit card to take three teens on a, you know, a, a vacation, just him and three high school girls or something like that. And of course, lawsuits and train wrecks ensue. Now, I'm not saying it's not born from practical, real experiences. Lord, right. no, my, I mean, my, my parish is in multiple lawsuits and the diocese is being wonderful in helping us with that. But I will say that the way we overcome that is by creating experiences and events and uh, meetings and one-on-ones where we feel like we are being supported by you and not that we're doing the support of your career. Case yeah. in point, uh, the, our, our archdiocese uh, does a youth conference. And for years, it was terrible. Now it's really good. Cardinal would send a letter to every pastor. Why aren't you bringing teens? Why aren't you bringing teens? Why aren't you bringing teens? And it made us feel like we were just propping up there. Like, oh, oh, I, I'll tell you why. Because the last time I went, they literally never mentioned Jesus, God, the gospel, morality, the church, sacraments. They didn't even have mass available, confession available. There was no scripture. There was nothing Catholic about this thing. It was a public school assembly. Oh, oh, but tell me how I'm supposed to prop you up. You know, so that, that was my big thing. Then I met people in dioceses where they're going to the events of their youth ministers. You know, it's like do for the diocesan people what we want parish youth ministers to do for the youth, right? Show up at their stuff, support them like crazy, 
and uh, figure out a way that they can get paid more. That's really it. <laughs> that, no, that's beautiful. I mean, you're, you're speaking to our hearts. You know, that's our, I mean, we, you know, internally as we, I mean, we've got a bunch of metaphors, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, like we're, you know, we're like, like, I don't know, like, a, like the, yeah, like the, the franchise chain, you know, like, like, like Popeye's, like we, we don't, we don't fry any chicken. Like the, the, the parishes, the individual franchises are the ones who are frying all the chicken. And our job is to, our job is to help them and remove obstacles. And there, there is no such thing as us succeeding without them succeeding, you know, and you have this, these cute little jokes. It's like kind of like our, the test of our success is, is, you know, when, when father's having a really hard day, you know, and you know, there's, there's a, you know, some pipe has broken and there's leaking and there's complaining and the parents are mad about this and when he's having a really hard day. And then all of a sudden caller ID, you know, chancery comes over. We, we want that, that, that first visceral response to be, oh, good. Finally, someone's calling to help, you know, and not some involuntary swear or some, <laughs> something like that. Like we, you know, we, yeah, we really want to, to be a place of respite and encouragement and support and uh, all of that. So thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like we now we owe you for the counseling session. Yeah. I get a lot of crying people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah. Michael, any, any closing thoughts here as we, as we wrap up? If you're not praying, if you don't have a consistent prayer life, quit your job. If you're a lay person, quit your job. If you're a priest, return, go on retreat, beg the bishop to find some religious order to take over your church for a while. Go on retreat. Hiding mm -hmm. behind your desk is not, it's just like binging on Netflix and ice cream. Not that I've ever done that, but it doesn't actually restore you right? Mm -hmm. What restores you is your commitment and communion with the Lord. And if you are a lay person and you are not praying, but you're a, a, a full-time volunteer, maybe you are an employee or whatever status you might be. If you're not praying regularly, you are the next scandal of the church, right? You are, you are setting yourself up, not just for burnout, but for lashing out, for acting out, for all the outs that you don't want to be outed. You're about to do that. And so I tell people, if you've never prayed consistently, start today. In a couple months from now, you still don't pray consistently, then quit your job. Like you're not meant for church work. If you can't bring the glory of the Lord into your focus and the people that you're doing ministry to before the glory of the Lord, then you need to stop. If you don't know how to pray, I had a deacon, I led a parish mission and I said, okay, for 30 minutes, I want you to take the sermon on the mount, just read through it, pray about it. The deacon came up to me and said, I don't know how to pray. The deacon, the deacon, at this church said, I don't know how to pray. And I would bet you uh, half the staff doesn't either. Can the rest of this retreat be on how to pray personally? He just met personal prayer. He's like, I can do the math That's stuff. Awesome. And so I'm like, Oh, well, thank you for being honest, but Oh my gosh, if I'm going to go cry right now. But the idea is like, yeah. if we're not ministering from a place of, of our, from the center of our relationship with Christ, then what we are doing is giving the world us. And we aren't enough. We aren't enough for ourselves, let alone for other people. We need to give them Jesus. And the only way you can give them Jesus, if it's filled with prayer, centered on prayer, returns to prayer. One of the best things I ever did when I was a youth minister was I photo, we had uh, all the kids, we make like a yearbook because there's like 500 kids at this time in our youth group. And so we had registered, not attending. And so we had, uh, we made a yearbook of it and I, and I photocopied their page. So they had their face and their name and I gave it to all the small group leaders. And I said, your mission every week is to pray for these 12 kids. So that you mm -hmm. remember their face and you remember their name and then to find them on Sunday night at a life night when we're doing the social and to talk to them, introduce yourself, 
and say, I'm praying for you. And then to bring that pr- and bring that prayer, whatever they have before the Lord. You know, I'm doing sack prep with the kid who came to the first one to skip the second one, came to the third one. At the end of the first one, this kid could not be less in, uh, more, more disengaged. He tried to be more disengaged, couldn't happen. So afterwards, we're talking. He's like, yeah, I'm really worried. I play football. We have our first game tomorrow. Who do you play football for? The freshman team for Oak Ridge High School. It's the first time we've been able to play football in an arena since COVID. Oh, my gosh. That's it. What time's the game? 4.30 so no one can come and sit in the stands. So we do them earlier in the day so that people can't come. Right. And you're like, oh, that's weird. Okay. Um, I said, well, so I pulled out my phone and I set an alarm for 430 and it said, pray for so-and-so. So then I didn't see him next week. Saw him the following week. And I was like, hey man, welcome. And I had his name. I knew him. I welcomed him directly. And I said, hey, I prayed for you for your football game at 430 the other week. How did it go? Just staring at me, eyes wide. He goes, you remembered, right? Those are the moments where you realize yeah. that grace is built on prayer, not on Michael Gormley being clever. Right. Like, okay, awesome. Yeah. You really were praying for me. People need to see that. Mike, that's, that's beautiful. Drop the mic. We can't get any, well, I mean, don't, it's expensive, but uh, yeah. Can't get any it's better. On a boom arm. <laughs> <laughs> you can't drop it. Thank you, man. We can't get any better than that. Where do people go? If people want more Jesus flowing through <laughs> Michael Gormley, where, where, where do they go? Where can people find you? Uh, there are three places. One, every knee shall bow. If you're listening to this, chances are every knee shall bow could be a good podcast for you. It's published through Ascension Press. Me and my buddy Dave Van Bickle pray for him. His wife is stage four cancer. So we don't actually, we're not able to record enough episodes together. Um, but, uh, we actually do like every other week we record an episode. Then one of us will just post something, uh, solo. But um, we record that, and it's to help Catholics preach the gospel from the heart of the church. That's the goal of Every Knee Shall Bow, weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. Um, and then there's another podcast that I do that I don't really recommend anyone listening to. It's called Catching Foxes. <laughs> it is not necessarily a religious podcast. It is uh, the collision of faith and culture. It's made for, for young adults, but we found that most, like, most of our listeners are just all over the board. Um, <laughs> but uh, we take a saucy approach to life, I guess. Saucy, maybe? I don't know. Uh, yeah, a brutally a- honest that sometimes ends with an explicit tag on the old iTunes chart. So if you do, if you listen to your podcast while in car line with your kids at school, Catching Foxes should be an earbud uh, experience. <laughs> um, uh, but that's, that's what that's about. And, you know, here's the funny thing is, you know, Bishop Barron talks about the nuns, right? Those mm-hmm. 18 to 35-year-olds that have left the church, you know, this young generation. Uh, 10,000 nuns come and listen to Catching Foxes, right? Or, or 6,000 nuns with 4,000 people in the other category. And I just think, you know, like we had one woman who was listening who was married to another woman. They had just adopted uh, a child together, and she's living chastely because of catching foxes. And I, I wrote back to her, I went, you mean every knee shall bow, right? And she's like, no, you are my Catholic community. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that does not make sense, but glory to God. And we get a lot of those. A lot of people around the margins yeah. of the church are like, for some reason, this resonates with me. Lastly, SoundCloud. SoundCloud is your home for amateur rap and house music. And also, I post all of my talks on there for free. Um, so I have like 250 talks, soundcloud.com slash amdgomer, amdgomer. And uh, you can get hundreds of talks for free right there, all different stuff. I talk a lot. Layevangelist.com. I'm not on any social media. Don't bother finding me there. Burn it all. It's awful. It's killing our culture. So no social media. 
Good, good for you. Hey, Mike, <laughs> why don't we, we, you know, we, this is a, this is a place of prayer, but given, given your ending comments and uh, what you shared about Dave, I did not know uh, yeah. Dave's wife was um, battling cancer, certainly stage four. Um, you know, the Lord's outside of time and, you know, we're recording this uh, a couple of weeks before we're going to actually release it, but um, maybe we could just uh, close in prayer and, uh, yeah. Trust that the you know that those when when they're able to listen to this whenever they're able to listen to this that as they join us in in this prayer that the Lord's going to use that and answer that. Uh, so, Mike, would you close us in in prayer, just praying for for Dave and his wife? Absolutely, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, amen. Holy Spirit, and kindle within us the fire of Your divine love. Radiate Your Spirit of truth, beauty, and goodness through us. Come, Holy Spirit, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. So we beg for you to intercede with us and for us with sighs too deep for words. Lord Jesus, you know the heart of your daughter, Amber. You know how she has five kids who desperately need her, some with special needs, Lord, that she could just experience ongoing healing that the cancer could fall into remission. Lord Jesus, we hope and pray for the consolation of her heart through all these trials that she might be able to unite and to continue uniting her sufferings to yours on the cross. Lord Jesus, we ask that her model and witness of joyful and patient endurance of hardships might become ours as well, that we might be able to imitate Amber as Amber imitates you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Michael, thank you for being with us. Thanks for what you do. Yeah. Uh, again, all our listeners, thank you. You can find us at EquipCast, all one word. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, and uh, you, won't, you won't miss an episode. Uh, ke- check out Catching Foxes, and uh, uh, Every Knee Shall Bow as well. Again, Michael, thank you for being with us, and thanks for being you, and thanks for all sorts of other <laughs> stuff. Awkward close. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. God bless, all everybody. Right.